all the way back to the Greek philosophers, you start seeing this narrative about what, what's the meaning of life. Greek philosophers believed that human beings were what they called telic creatures. And it's from the Greek word telos or telikos, which means purpose or meaning. That there's this in, inherent itch, this intrinsic desire to know that my life matters, that there's meaning to my life, that there's purpose to my existence. Or are we, in the words of Carrie Livgren, are we just dust in the wind? It's just here for a little while and then not. And so we've, uh, in, in the middle of this series, we thought this is a really good time, especially around graduation period, to take a deep dive into the basics about existence. William Provine is a Darwinian evolutionist, and he was in a debate with a Christian scientist about Darwinian evolution. And by the way, I, as when I mention evolution, I am mentioning Darwinian macroevolution, which means that species can become jump into another species. Uh, I'm a believer in microevolution, that species develop within their kind. That's undeniable in science. Darwinian evolution is actually still, to this day, a theory it's, it, that a species can jump to another species. So the process of Darwinian macroevolution is a godless process. There is no... There is no inherent design that you are the way you are today because the right fish had the right fins and that's why you have feet. Uh, no kidding, from goo to you by way of the zoo. That's how it turned out the way you turned out. So we talk about that and he said, he admitted, Provine admitted this. He said, there are five implications of Darwinian macroevolution. One is there is no evidence for God, and another is there is no life after death. All we are is food for worms after we die. There's no ultimate foundation for right and wrong. We've covered that extensively in this series. Fourth, people don't really have any free will. And fifth, there is no ultimate meaning to life. Did you know that? I mean, if, if, if all you are is your 70 years or so, eat, drink, and be merry, for he who dies with the most toys wins. If I had in, indelible proof there is no God, you think I'm competitive now? Oh my gosh, I'm going to be the richest, most ruthless, win or lose competitive. Why? Because this is all there is. Why would you even think about suffering if you know that you could do something about it as long as it ensures that I survive and you don't? And there is no penalty for that. So just staying out of jail, okay, that would be my goal, would be to stay out of jail and then live as ruthlessly as possible. And so the implications of Hitler's theory of the superior race come directly from Darwinian godless evolutionary macro theory that there is no meaning to life. And yet, and yet, our, our faith echoes from the beginning that there was a first cause, not just behind the heavens and the earth, but there was a first cause to you and to me, a non-contingent reality entered into contingency, we are contingency, and, and this emanation of God's image came through you and me, and that you have a purpose in life. In the words of our great creed, to enjoy God and love and serve him forever.
That's your purpose. No matter what you do, that's your purpose, is to enjoy God and love and serve him forever. And yet today we are sending, especially students, out into a world that inherently there's a belief that we're not sure where you came from, we're not sure where you're going, but enjoy your life. For me, it seems cruel. It seems cruel. The definitive statement ever written, I believe, extra biblically at least, on meaning to life was by Viktor Frankl. If you have not read, and I would, I would recommend it to you recent graduates. I know, you know, Dr. Seuss is in vogue this time of year. Oh, the places you go, you'll be on your way up. You'll be, leading, you know, doing great things and all that. Read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. In 1942, he and his parents and his family, his wife, were taken captive into a Nazi concentration camp. Three years later, he was released. They weren't because they didn't survive. It took four years for him to recover from that Nazi concentration camp. He was, by the way, a brilliant neurosurgeon, a brilliant man. But because he was a Jew, he was inferior and worthy of death. He survived. It took him four years to recover. And at the end of that four years, in nine days, he wrote this book. And it's a stunning statement about the fact that when you're stripped down to nothing, Having meaning in your life because there is a God who created you will sustain you. He believed that a lot of what separated people in the concentration camps was those were the, 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 the principle of those who with meaningless existences and those who had a sense of meaning to their life. And he wrote these words, life is not primarily a quest for pleasure as Freud believed, or a quest for power as one of the fathers of modern psychology, Alfred Adler, believed but a quest for meaning in his or her life. And you see this throughout so many characters in history. I'm a big reader of Abraham Lincoln, and one of the things that drove Lincoln was, was this sense that my life should matter. My life, I don't want to die, and nobody even remembers my being alive, that there was a, there was a legacy that I left that had transcendent purpose. And if you... Uh, unpeel the layers of our onion of our beings, I think you'll find the same thing to any per person who's healthy. That if there is no God and we are simply finite beings with no intrinsic value and when we die we morph into eternal nothingness, then where does our desire for transcendent meaning come from? And I realize there may be some of you who are young enough to have not thought of this yet. I can honestly say until I was 20 years old, the word existential didn't, in the, it wasn't even in my vocabulary. I didn't care. And then until one day I did. And at 20 years of age, second year in college, it hit me, what is the point of all this? And I came back to Christ. Because there has to be a point. There has to be a point, not just behind pleasure, but behind pain or else it can absolutely be overwhelming. Let me give you one example of this. This is just, I love these words. Not these words, the words that are gonna follow. These are great words, but they don't mean anything to a lot of us. So this is in the middle of Psalm 68. The writer of the Psalm, David, is saying that, that when the Messiah comes, when he ascends, he will take captivity captive, which is a really cool image. He'll take captivity captive. Well, that psalm, that verse, verse 18, is quoted again in Ephesians 4 when it talks about the ascension of Christ, that he left behind gifts in his, in his path 
backward. He left behind gifts in his train where he is distributing basically purpose to people's lives. And a theologian by the name of um, James Stewart wrote these words. It is a glorious phrase. He led captivity captive. The triumph, the very triumphs of his foes, it means he used for their defeat. He completed their dark achievements to serve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. How many of you right now, right now, have a cross in your home somewhere or around your neck right now? Raise your hand if you have that. Now you understand that you have the equivalent of an electric chair. Here's this God who takes, like, so every time you look at that, remind yourself, he turned an electric chair into a gold ornament. That what, what kind of God is this? this is, nobody makes this up. This is why C.S. Lewis said it was the queer twist of the cross that brought him to Christ. Who makes this up? Who, who makes this stuff up? They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishable in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not come conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil he conquered through it can I get a wow yeah it's just you go wow that that I'm his follower in that day and I'm going to be struggling with what is the meaning of this the most incredible man we've ever known the most innocent man we've ever known the most loving man we've ever known and he's being nailed to our present instrument of torture what can there be in this they didn't understand it they literally after he was resurrected still ask are you going to conquer through conquering rome they didn't get it that the god who made us in some of the most incredulous events of our lives, still has meaning that we may not understand in the moment. The reason I share that is inject your divorce into that, those words. Inject, inject your cancer. Inject your bankruptcy. Inject your job loss, your home. Inject into that statement because the same reality is true. Those things that we often think, this is, this is meaningless. How can there be any purpose behind this? And let there be no mistake, it doesn't mean that cancer's ever good. It's never good. It doesn't mean that. It just simply means that here's this God who infuses life with such a pregnancy of meaning that even the worst things we may eventually look back on and go, oh my. Wow. Wow. I remember who was it said that life is like a tapestry. You know those beautiful woven tapestries that on the one side is this beautiful weave of thread. But if you were to look at the other side, you would see this menagerie, this conflicting threads that don't seem to make any pattern at all until you turn it over. And this is your life. 
I may be speaking to a student right now, and you don't, you know, you're tired of people asking you what college you're going to go to. If you've picked your college, you're tired of people asking you what major you're going to have, because you know it's going to change five times in the next two years. (laughs) If you're a recent graduate of college and you don't know where you're going to work right now, you wonder what's going on? Where's God? What meaning can all of this have? And this, this, this is our God. And a really interesting thing is, is Christ represents all this meaning even in the worst and the best of life. But, but he tethers us because of that. So one, on the one end, he anchors your life in you have a verifiable sense of origin. You're not here because the right fish had the right fins and you got feet. That's not it. That in the beginning, he made them male and female. There's a reason why. There are reasons why. There's meaning behind your making. Now, by that, I don't mean to imply you have to find this one purpose in life. And if you miss that one purpose, you're going to miss meaning life. I do not mean to say that. One of the unintended consequences of great books like The Purpose Driven Life is it presented this notion, as do a lot of spiritual and personality gift testings, that here's this one calling in your life, and if you miss that, you've missed your purpose in life. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I'm still not sure about mine. I've been doing it for 35 years, and I don't know if I found the right one or not. I'm going to show you why that's important here in a moment. But I do know some things that I doubted as a kid. Why did you make me this way, God? Why, why, why? That, oh, my dad, as I've told you before, was 6'3", 215 pound, athletic linebacker. Back in his day, they wore leather helmets. He was a big linebacker. And so for me, as just, I was obsessed with sports from the get-go. I'm just obsessed. He was a high school coach, so I got invested in football real early on. And yet, it became obvious very early on, I wasn't going to be 6'3", 215 pounds. You can't believe the people that I'll see, and I'll see them out in the public, and they'll go, man, you're just not as big as you look on screen. You know that? (laughs) Yeah, thanks for reminding me. And for years, I would like, man, God, why didn't you make me like Dad? And and truthfully, truthfully, I wouldn't be in ministry if I'd have been his size. I wouldn't have been. I remember as a kid thinking, why? Why all these? I I was literally the only left-hander in my class. Why did you make me left-handed? Now, those of you who are left-handed know that for years we had to learn to write on desks that were not made for left-handers because the rest of the world has no compassion for we left-handers. Right? And I just remember as a kid, my big thing was I loved Johnny Bench. I could never be a catcher. Why? Because God wrote the 11th commandment, left-handers shall not be catchers in baseball. <laughs> right? For some reason, we couldn't be a catcher. I wanted to be a catcher. And then I realized that there is actually some purpose behind being left-handed. Left-handed men use both sides of their brain more, so left-handed men are the most balanced <laughs> men So my point with this is, is that you have a point of definition. You have a point of definition that sometimes later in life you'll say, oh, oh. But then you also have a point of destiny. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That there's this, there's this, de- this destiny that we all have that is our lives are always pointing somewhere to some place. 
And when you tether them on both ends, it allows there to be a security in the middle. So when I'm a college graduate and I don't know where I'm going to work, I can still have a deep sense of meaning, even though I may not have found my calling yet. And I think this is one of the most fascinating things. As a person who came to Christ because of an existential crisis, okay, what's the point? I may even be crazy and I don't know it. Who knows what crazy is? And until I came to Christ, I didn't have any definition. I didn't have any boundary. And then Christ came. And he says, I have a, point, I have a sense of, of, of origin for you. I have a sense of destiny for you. And that's why he says, you remember your creators. We saw this last week. You remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when I will say, I find no trouble and no, no pleasure in them. In other words, right now is the time for you to get anchored in that point of origin and that point of destiny and say everything in between, I'm going to trust has meaning. And if, and, and if it is a huge job that I wanted or if it is not, I'm gonna trust that God never wastes a crisis. He never wastes a cross. I, uh, I've, we've, many of us have relied on these words for a long time with our lives, but, but we often don't look at them in the, sense of, in the context of an existential question. And these are really applicable words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Now notice a couple things there. The contrast of there's going to be a point in your life when you can't lean on your emotions. You can't trust your experiences as the validation of your, in this case, meaning in life. You can't. I mentioned a few weeks ago, pilots are trained to fly IFR, which means by instrument only. And there comes that point in a pilot's training when they are given blinders where they cannot see out the cockpit on the horizon. And then the trainer will take the plane and it'll jostle the inner ear fluid. And so that pilot trainee feels like they're banking 20 degrees left, but their instrument panel says, no, you're banking 10 degree, uh, 20 degrees right. You're actually banking 10 degrees left. Now, if that pilot trainee makes a decision based on how they feel, they're gonna crash. They're gonna crash. But if they trust the instrument panel and they are obedient to that, they're, they're gonna fly the plane, they're gonna land it well. And that's what Proverbs 3 is saying. There are gonna come points in your life when you may feel like, what's the point? I don't feel God. I don't feel meaning. I don't feel purpose. This whole thing's a big, a big waste. No trust. Because in those periods when your cross has hit you, that's when your faith is gonna kick in. I will tell you today, walking with Christ now, uh, as an adult since I was 20, so, so 39 years, I have something better than experience. I have something better than experience. I have something better than feelings. I have a faith that when I go through a pandemic and I've just lost my life's work, he's, he's not gonna waste that. He's not gonna waste that. That he's gonna redeem that in ways that I cannot see today. And the same thing's true of your life. Don't fret about meaning and purpose. Be faithful with what God has given you and he'll take care of the meaning and purpose. He will. One of the unintended consequences of our personality test, gifts test, purpose test, life, world, culture, is that we think we gotta find that one thing. 
I remember I was in my office on Franklin Street, the beginning days of our church, 1993, and I picked up the latest issue of Leadership Journal, which was a leadership journal written for, for, for uh, pastors. The editor at that time was Craig Barnes, and he shared his story, and it would change how I saw my life. He talked about the fact that for months he agonized whether he would receive the call that he'd been given to become the senior pastor at Congressional Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., a church of high influence. A lot of senators uh, attended Congressional Presbyterian, very influential position. And after months of agonizing, he decided to leave his church that he loved and move to Washington, D.C. He prayed about it and felt like this is what God wanted him to do. Three months in, he gets a terminal diagnosis of cancer. And he said, I just said, God, what are you up to? <laughs> I mean, you made it for me very clear that you wanted me to come to Congressional Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. and have an influence, and you let me get cancer? And he said this. I'll never forget these words. He said, and what I learned from that is that the Lord indelibly told me, Craig, I don't need you. I love you. And you cannot fully love something that you need. It actually inhibits your love when you need something. But I love you. I don't need you. And those words would frame my life as I realized I'm not needed. He invites me to play in his game. If I had chosen not to do this, he could have used me in some other way, and there'd be some other person who would have led this church many, many years ago. But I'm not needed. And a lot of times these ideas of specific meaning to our existence becomes a digression into a specific purpose that if I don't find that purpose, I'm not going to find the meaning in life. And God says, no, honey, I don't need you. I love you. He tapped a guy named Saul of Tarsus on the shoulder one day. He said, I want you to be my chosen instrument to the Gentiles for the gospel of Christ. And Paul said later, I was not disobedient to that heavenly calling. In other words, I could have been. I could have said, God, I don't want to suffer for your name. Because that's what God told me. He said, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. And he could have said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend my life doing that. I'd rather be a Pharisee. I'd rather be a lawyer. I'd rather be an attorney. I'd rather do this. And God would have had somebody else. Because you know why? God's non-contingent. He doesn't need any one of us. I don't know about you, but I find that so liberating that he chooses us. And the same thing is true of you. Don't fret, especially you graduates, about your meaning and purpose. Figure out what you're good at. Maybe even what you want to do, and if it's a legitimate vocation, I'm telling you, you can be a street sweeper and you can do it for God. You can. You can, you can find meaning in every single endeavor. Here's how life works. I want to show you something here. Because this really embodies many people, but one particular person in the Bible. Her name was Esther. Anybody ever heard of Esther, the queen? Esther Hadassah was her was her Jewish name, and she was the supermodel who saved the day. She was so beautiful that when King Xerxes of Persia, who, he got tired of his wife, so he thought he'd have a Miss Persia contest. I kid you not, men really are bores, okay? I mean, men really are the worst. I know, we're the worst people in the world. 
Um, but he decided to have a Miss Persia contest and she got thrown into this contest and she won the Miss Persia contest hands down. I mean, she was so stunning and beautiful. She, all these events are taking place. She comes in, she's now the queen of Persia. This Jewish girl who was stunningly beautiful became the queen of Persia. And she was there in the words of the book of Esther for such a time as this. Because you know what? One of the men, the administrators in Xerxes' court was plotting a holocaust. He was plotting a way to eliminate the Jews from Persia, to annihilate Jews. Esther catches wind of this, and one day, it was, it was unlawful to go to the king without being summoned. She tells her uncle Mordecai, if I perish, I perish, but I got to get in his ear and tell him. I got to tell him, this can't happen. And she prevents a holocaust. Why? Because she was pretty. Really. Really, that's, she's pretty. And I don't, you know, it's a really funny thing how, you know, if you're a man and your wife's pretty and somebody tells you, you know, your wife's really pretty, you, you, ever, you ever heard, we guys go, well, thank you. Like, we had something to do with it. Like, yeah, she was not very good looking, but she's the Maybelline girl now, I mean, because she got me, you know. She, but it's a really interesting thing. This whole thing that really is meaningless. I hate to tell you this, this Miss Persia contest, it's meaningless. Except God was behind the scenes. Because here's the cool thing about the book of Esther. Some of you know this. It's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned one time. He's in the shadows. He's off stage. And there are events going on that Esther doesn't know about. Mordecai doesn't know about. Haman doesn't know about. Xerxes doesn't. They don't know what's going on. But behind the scenes, God is working. How many things have happened in your life that you thought were meaningless and then you look back and you go, oh, if I hadn't answered that email, oh, your job and my job is to stay alert, to trust in the Lord with all our heart, be faithful with what he's given us. And then here's what he does. Here's what he does. Most of life is lived in this sentence right here. I just choose to live my life faithfully for God. I get up tomorrow morning and I choose to live my life faithfully for God. And I get up the next morning and I choose my life to, you know, faith. I mean, that's, 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 I mean, that's really, if you're expecting meaning and purpose that leads to the Indiana Jones excitement adventure to come to your life because you came to Christ, you're going to be waiting because it doesn't work that way. And one day, God says, hey, Esther, I need you to talk to Xerxes. And you're obedient to that. And you get to see how God used you for such a time as this. And then you know what? You go back to being pretty. You go back to being left-handed. You go back to being short. You go back to whatever it is. And then God, God, maybe, maybe one day use you. And then maybe, maybe one day you go, wow, my life really counted. But it's not often. You be faithful. God will take care of the meaning and purpose. And I'm telling you, you will find it great liberation in knowing God does not need you. God does not need you. But he chooses you. He picks you. I, uh, a few years ago, Sherry and I were at a fundraiser for Children's Miracle Network. And we got to sit at the table, two remarkable young women. One was Mallory Hagen, Miss America. Miss America is the one in the middle, not the one on closest to me. 
I know who bakes my bread, okay? I mean, I know. All right. So just an impressive young woman, really impressive. But at the same table was, and my apologies because my phone camera wasn't very good at this time, was Olivia Pierce. Same table. And Olivia Pierce, when she was three months old, was diagnosed with tumors behind both eyes, malignant tumors. Radiation took care of the, one in her, the ones in her right eye, but, but they had to take out her left eye. And she has a dynamism and a sparkle about her that is stunning. When we sat down, when Sherry and I sat down at her table, she goes, I'm Olivia, do you want my autograph? That's what she said. Do you want my autograph? And it was just so impressive as this little girl that, that um, has literally suffered through 30 surgeries but has raised now hundreds of thousands of dollars that will benefit other children like her. Now, I don't know why God lets little girls get malignant tumors behind their eyes, and I will never know, nowhere anyone. But I know that Mallory Hagen and Olivia Pierce both have a purpose. One is to be Miss America, and the other one is to be Miss Miracle Children's Network girl. And God never wastes beauty, and he never wastes cancer, and all you have to do is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't rely on your emotions and feelings. Just trust because you'll have something better. It's called faith. That keeps you going even when you don't feel it. And he'll, he'll make all your paths straight. It doesn't mean he'll make them easy. He'll make them straight. You see, what we tend to do is we tend to be Olivia Pierce and we tend to go, oh, I just don't have much to give. I literally only have one eye. I mean, I don't have much to give. Remember, 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 remember this. There are only 26 letters in the alphabet. Beethoven, look what Beethoven did with the same 26 letters you and I have to work with. There are only three basic colors, red, yellow, blue. That's it. But look at what Vincent Van Gogh did with those three basic colors. There are only seven basic musical notes. Look at what Beethoven did with the seven basic musical notes that we all have to work with. Look at what Eminem did with two, right? I mean, <laughs> it's amazing what God can do when I say not about what my limitations are, not about what I'm feeling, but I am going to trust that all I have to do is be faithful unto death and God will be faithful to take care of the meaning and purposes of my life that I may never know until heaven. That I may never know until heaven, right? Every time Claire Brown in South Africa posts something about what she's doing with the women that she's employed there, I think of the Claire Brown who was a sophomore in high school was cutting herself. And God took that pain and he turned it into this amazingly compassionate person as a Southbrooker. Every time on Instagram you see Claire Brown posting what she's doing, you ought to say, my life had meaning because you are a part of that. Every time I see my friend Dave Scharf, who when he got throat cancer and he was burning on his throat because of the radiation treatments, the way Andy Lehman and Fred Brooks took care of him, he said, he said, you know what? I'm gonna start a cancer hope ministry that, to make sure that no one ever goes through cancer alone if they don't want to. And you ought to, you ought to take pleasure because you're a part of that. You're a part of women in Georgia right now getting cancer hope 
help. Why? Because you're part of a church where someone said, I know even in cancer, God has a meaning for my life. What do you have? See what he does with it. Because only heaven knows what he will do. Let's pray. Father, Father, Father. I don't, I mean, we have teachers, coaches, electricians, contractors, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers here. And it's so easy to think, I don't know what I have to give. I don't know what my life matters. I don't know if anyone's ever going to know that I even existed. But you know what? We don't have to worry about that, do we, Father? All we have to do is just be faithful with the task you've given us, where we find ourselves. You don't need us. You could have someone else doing what we're doing. As a matter of fact, when we die, the world will just go on. But we have intrinsic worth. We are made in the image of God. We are made with a purpose that through everything we do in life, vocationally, professionally, whatever we do, our, our meaning is to enjoy God and love and serve him through what we do forever. And the reality is life is overflowing with meaning. And somewhat, someday we'll get to see what. So thank you for our time today. I pray we walk out of here with our faith bolstered that our lives matter. And that you're big. In Jesus we pray and everyone with great joy and enthusiasm said amen. See you next week everybody. See you next week.